Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Attorney General Merrick Garland's brief appearance today before the press, where he announced the public release of the search warrant and inventory of documents taken from Mar-a-Lago in Monday's FBI raid on the former President Trump's home. Garland also offered a passionate defense of FBI and DOJ personnel, which might have something to do with an attack on the FBI field office in Cincinnati today, given that Trump has riled up his supporters, claiming the FBI planted incriminating documents at Mar-a-Lago. Joining us is Sean Wilentz, an historian who briefed President Biden last week on the gathering threats to American democracy and historical comparisons between events leading up to the Civil War and the emergence of American fascism in the 1930s. He is the George Henry Davis 1886 Professor of American History at Princeton University, where he has taught since 1979. His books include The Rise of American Democracy, Jefferson to Lincoln, The Age of Reagan, A History, 1974 to 2008, Bob Dylan in America, and The Politicians and the Egalitarians. His latest book is No Property in Man, Slavery and Anti-Slavery at the Nation's Founding, and we will discuss the threat to American democracy posed by Donald Trump, who could return to head the executive branch in 2024, together with the Republican Party he controls, which could return to power in control of the legislative branch in November. In addition, we'll examine the right-wing takeover of the judicial branch and the extent to which the Supreme Court will undo our democracy and usher in plutocratic rule accompanied by a handmaid's tale moral authoritarianism. Then we'll go to Miami, Florida for a local perspective on the recent execution of a search warrant at Mar-a-Lago and speak with Grant Stern, a Miami-based columnist and radio broadcaster who writes two national news columns, one at the Washington Press by Occupy Democrats and one focused on original investigative reporting at the Stern Facts. He's also a contributing investigative reporter for dcreport.org as well as the author of the book series Meet the Candidates 2020 and hosts a weekly local radio broadcast on Jolt Radio called Only in Miami Show, which airs every Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Sean Wallace, who's the George Henry Davis 1886 Professor of American History at Princeton University, where he has taught since 1979. His books include The Rise of American Democracy, Jefferson to Lincoln, The Age of Reagan, A History, 1974 to 2008, Bob Dylan in America, The Politicians and the Egalitarians, and his latest book is No Property in Man, Slavery and Anti-Slavery at the Nation's Founding. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sean Wilentz. Great to be back here, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Sean. And uh, you, yeah. last week, you had an interesting 
experience in the White yes, House. Indeed. You gathered yeah. in the in the White House map room with a group of historians. And according to reports in the Washington Post, President Biden, who still had COVID, was in the same building, the White House, but he was upstairs in the East Wing and he addressed you all by monitor. And this all happened in the midst of a violent electrical storm where you, the thunderclap was so loud because right in front of the White House in, in uh, Lafayette Square, I think two or three people were killed uh, by a lightning strike. So a dramatic backdrop to an interesting conversation, which you're not at liberty to disclose, right? <laughs> I can say nothing. <laughs> well, once I'm being silent. But yeah, I mean, it was an off-the-record thing, so I, 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 I'm, I'm not at liberty to talk about anything, really. But, you know, the report's there in the Post, and, uh, you know, there it is. But, but, you know, there are issues. I mean, and there are issues that are really important that historians are thinking about and historians are talking about, me among them and what the state of American democracy is right now and how we put this into some kind of historical perspective. I think a lot of people are confused about that. A lot of people don't understand or don't quite appreciate the gravity of the situation we're in. Um, but I think historians have a way of understanding that better. And, um, you know, uh, quite apart from whatever might have happened at the White House, I mean, we've been talking about it constantly um, over, the, over, over the last few years, but with increasing um, what? Um, um, right, the I've right been, word. I've been using Concern, the F. I, I've been using the F word for some time. Um, yes. And obviously there are reasons to be cautious about that, and not throw that well, around wildly. Well, but on I the other know. hand, go ahead. Well, I think well, I've called him out. I mean, you know, in 1938, Franklin Delano Roosevelt gave a speech in which he talked about. You know the private interests that are trying to supersede the uh, the um, you know the elected government, democratic government, and he called them. He said this is a form of fascism. This is Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So if Franklin Delano Roosevelt is willing to use the words that are appropriate, why not? Why not we? Um, you know he saw what was what was going on, and he, and he, and this was by the way he wasn't talking about Germany, he wasn't talking about Italy, he was talking about the United States. So, you know, um, I mean, I'm all for, um, and, and, then, and then, you know, some years later, decades later, John F. Kennedy in, in Hollywood, California, where you, out where you are, Ian, gave a speech in which he didn't use that word, but he talked about extremism in no uncertain terms and talked about the craziness that can uh, poison American politics. And um, this was in November of 1961. Very powerful speech about the American spirit and how this poisons the American spirit. So... I mean, I'm I'm all for people, you know, taking the gloves off. I mean, really. I mean, how long are we going to mince words? Well, then, as an historian, do you see a very real comparison between, particularly, the area that you just mentioned with FDR, and that is in the 1930s when you had, mm -hmm. you know, the Reverend Charles Coughlin with his poisonous radio mm -hmm. broadcasts, which you know, similar to Tucker Carlson and. Um, mm -hmm. Alex Jones, that kind of poison that spread and it captured a lot of the country, his mm -hmm. anti-Semitism and that hate spreading, and the extent to which the German-American Bund was active. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is that a better it, comparison than the Civil War comparisons that uh, well, I, others I, like I, Michael Beschloff have made? Well, I think that there, 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 is a, there are three periods, really, of, of where democracy has met the, it's been a, its moment of maximum danger. 
And I mean, since the founding, we'll put the founding aside. I mean, one was the Civil War, obviously, um, the greatest threat to this to this point um, to American democracy, which was the slaveholders' rebellion, you know, the secession. Secondly, the 1930s, what we were talking about, and not simply about the German-American Bund and the sort of you know reflections of European fascism. I mean, there was an attempt, there was an attempted coup against FDR. Um, you know, a millionaire's coup had gotten nowhere, but it, it was it was being plotted to get rid of him and install martial law. That happened. Um, um, there were any number of people that were um, not, not just, you know, Father Coughlin, but all the isolationists. These are not, you know, these are people who are speaking in the American brain, if you will. They're, they're an American version of all of this stuff. You know, simpatico with what was going on in Germany and so forth, but they were doing it in the American way. And that was very much there in the 30s, really from the, 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 the 1932, 33 on, there was this always this looming threat. Um, um, and, and, you know, Roosevelt nailed it in 1938. So that was the second of the two, the Civil War, um, the Great Depression, New Deal. Then there's this third one, which has been around for a while, but, you know, that, well, that we're living with right now, um, that has a history that goes back at least to the 1990s, if not back to 1980 but that I think had a turn in the year 2000. Um, you know, the, the, the day January 6th, 2021, ought to live side by side with November 22nd, 2000, which was an attempt to throw a presidential election with violence um, in a big riot, not a big riot, a small riot, but a consequential one in Miami-Dade, um, when a, a group of Republicans came in and basically shut down the count, recounting of votes in Miami-Dade County. They were never completed. Who knows what the election of 2000 might have looked like if they had been allowed to do that? And uh, it was it was a, a Republican mob. It was known as the Brooks Brothers Riot. Um, among the people in there was none other than Matt Schlapp, who was currently well known, you know, with the American Conservative Union, CPAC. He was one of the people in the in the room. You get the famous picture of him. The person who's boasted of organizing that riot was Roger Stone. So there's a direct continuity there between that event and what happened on January 6th. Um, we've seen this building, though, and this is the culmination of those forces that were there. So those are the, the big three. Civil War, uh, the New Deal, the you know, uh, FDR, and then what's been going on now. So you're basically arguing that we're on the verge of what Hamilton in the Federalist Papers called government by brute force. Uh, brute force, right. I mean, I have to get the exact quote. He didn't put it that way. But he pointed out that, you know, what they're trying to do in the, in the Constitution, when they were the, the framers were putting it together, was to come up with a science of politics, a kind of political system, which would finally get rid of government or of, of rule by force, by, um, you know, by, by, by whims, by, by heredity, you know, monarchy and all of that, but that the, the force behind it, that it would be some alternative to that, some new order that they were trying to come up with. That was his primary defense of what the Constitution was going to do. And I, you know, and what I was saying in that quotation, I think I gave it to the Hill, um, was, you know, we're, we seem to be reverting back to everything that, that Hamilton was frightened of and that the Constitution was supposed to keep us from, from, from having. Yeah, I mean, it's that bad. It's right. that bad. And again, I'm speaking with Sean Wilentz, who's the George Henry Davis 1886 Professor of American History at Princeton University, where he's taught since 1979. His books include The Rise of American Democracy, Jefferson to Lincoln, The Age of Reagan, A History 1974 to 2008, Bob Dylan in America, The Politicians and the Egalitarians, and his latest book is No Property in Man, Slavery and Anti-Slavery at the Nation's Founding. So today, Sean, Attorney General, 
Merrick Garland held a very brief press conference at which he made a brief statement and took no questions. But he basically said, you know, the DOJ is going to release all of the paperwork for the for the uh, so-called raid on uh, Mar-a-Lago, right. including, you know, the search warrants and the inventory of what was taken. And he pointed right. out, of course, that the Justice Department did not make this raid public. It was Donald Trump who made it public. Mm-hmm. And then he also made a very impassioned plea on behalf of those working in the FBI and the Department of Justice who are mm-hmm. under attack. And who are they under attack by? None other than the former president, Donald Trump. And that, to my mind, has an historical resonance to Hitler's Germany, where, you know, the SA and the street thugs become the militia that take over from the government in the sense that, you know, Trump's got his militias and backers, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. he's attacking the FBI. He's saying that they planted these documents. And that's also a way for Trump to cover the fact that when it's revealed what's in these classified documents, which likely to be very embarrassing to Trump, if not a real smoking gun, Trump right. will then argue that, oh, those are the ones that were planted by the FBI. But there's right. another side to it where reality intrudes here because at 9 a.m. today in Cincinnati, a man crashed into the FBI office. He had an AR-15. He then was pursued by the Ohio State Police had a big shootout with them at an overpass, and then he disappeared into a cornfield. And uh, at this point, there's a standoff. I'm not sure what the, what the what the results of that will be, but he's armed with an AR-15 and he has he's got body armor on. We, mm-hmm. I mean, it's not a big stretch to assume that that has something to do with Trump's uh, statements uh, about the sure, FBI. I, I, I mean, just excited by it, I'm sure. Um, look. One of the, I forget the, 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 the judge's name, but a, a federal judge testified before the January 6th convention, you know, the, you know, the committee. And um, he remarked, and he's a very conservative judge. Ludic, judge you mean. That's right, Judge Ludic, that's right. And he said at one point that had Mike Pence gone through with what Trump wanted him to do, that the nation would be in a revolutionary situation. And um, that's right. And we are on the verge of that revolutionary situation. Um, Mike Pence spared us the revolution happening on January 6th, but we are at the precipice of that. That's what these people are trying to do, is overthrow the government of the United States. Understand that. That is exactly what they are trying to do. And um, it has to be met with the kind of resistance that was, you know, resistance that was given to some eye to the Confederates. Um, the government has to stand up to this and stop it, because it is a clear and present danger to the United States government, to our government, to American democracy. Um, that's what they are doing. Um, they are trying to discredit our basic institutions in the eyes of their followers, and in a way that will um, not only circumvent the Constitution, but will undo it. And, um, and, and look, calling a, an election into, you know, into question the way that, that Trump did, it goes to the core of American, the American democratic system. But then attacking every other law enforcement agency or major federal law enforcement agency um, this is this is revolution. What they're what they're preaching, and um, uh, I think if you actually you know got them sat down, they'd say yes. That's exactly what we're doing, and people have to wake up to that. Well, when you think about the country from a sort of foreign policy perspective, mm-hmm. you know the, the strategy of Vladimir Putin has always been to exploit divisions in this country, and that goes back to Soviet right. times as well. 
And Correct. Trump is his perfect instrument. Correct. Because this one man, and one man alone, this is the amazing thing. This is a one-man show. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's any precedent in history. Of course, history is full of uh, tyrants like Hitler and Napoleon and mm-hmm. Julius Caesar, etc. But still, the idea that this one man is so psychologically damaged by his father, who was something of a Nazi, who wanted him to be a killer son and, ne- and never be a loser... He can't, affa- right. he can't accept the fact that he lost an election. And then he hoists this canard that he won, and it ma- right. metastasizes into the bedrock belief system of an entire, one of the two parties in this country, the GOP, yes. Yes. the Republican Party. Yes. It's now their orthodoxy. Yes. And he's got these people locked into it, and, it's, and it wouldn't be happening but for this amazing propaganda Pravda operation that the Republicans have through Fox News and others, and even Correct. more fringy people like Alex Jones. And Correct. this is what I th- I find so appalling is, you know, you can't stop Trump. He is what he is, and he's you can see that he's going to continue doing this. And he's at this point he's the front runner for the Republican ticket in twenty twenty four. Sure. What sure. can what can be done about the Goebbels like propaganda outfit? that keeps these people locked in these delusions. Well, that's a problem because, you know, short of restoring the fairness doctrine and doing everything that was undone under the Reagan administration, as far as communications were concerned, and not just the Reagan administration, actually, but never mind. Um, you know, it's going to be very hard to put that genie back in the bottle, right? Um, but what it will take is, you know, what happened the last time, um, you know, sort of another precursor to all of this, which is McCarthyism. Um, where the Republicans finally did stand up, and um, um, that's not—that's just not happening now. In part because the Republican Party is no longer a normal political party in the way that it still was in 1953-54. Um, it is—it is a, uh, a party that's in—you um, know—it's been in meltdown for some time. That Trump came along and commandeered it to his own purposes, gave them you know uh, new life, if you will, and now they're beholden to him. Um, but the only thing that's going to destroy Donald Trump, other than you know the, the voters of the United States, you know, you know American voters could do it, and I hope they will. Uh, they actually did do it in 2020, but you know he decided to to, to 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 do his thing. But you know that would get nowhere. That would be getting nowhere if there had been more of a pushback, public pushback from the Republican Party, from the leadership of the Republican Party. What there was instead, you have you know. Um, um, sycophants like um, ambitious, apolitical, power-hungry sycophants like um, your California, the guy from Bakersfield, McCarthy, and um, you know these are not normal politicians. These are these are um, um, they they have they don't have the backbone of you know Margaret Chase Smith or uh, you know other Republicans in the fifties. No, they go along with it. And um, now there are divisions. I know there are divisions. You know there are divisions. I speak to Republicans all the time. I have lots of Republican friends. And there are plenty of people who are just, you know, shaking their head in horror, um, and 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 don't know quite what to do about it. But they they have no traction, they have no leadership because everybody's frightened of it. Um, but that's what it's going to take, and that's going to have to be, I think, a patriotic act on their part. Um, you notice that, um, you know, for example, um, a, a major, a minority leader, um, sorry, majority leader um, um, McConnell has not been, you know, quite as vociferous as. Uh, um, as, as McCarthy was about this raid, so, so-called raid down in, down in Florida, um, you know, you get the feeling that there are real divisions there. 
and um, you know we'll just see what happens. A lot depends on what happens this November. Uh, I mean, that's really the acid test. And I think actually some of the craziness that we're seeing right now is because the Republicans are beginning to get nervous. They may not do as well in September, in November, as they expected to do. Well, they're certainly not looking as they're going to do that well with the Senate. It's hard to know with the House. Yeah. Yeah. But I know you can't talk about what you talked to President Biden about last week in the White House with other historians. But it would be my guess that somebody brought up the obvious that's happening to us, and that is that January the 6th, as bad as it was and as close we came to to a constitutional crisis, as you mentioned, Judge Ludic alluded to with hang Mike mm-hmm. Pence, etc., and they were literally prepared, and this looks like it was the White House Deputy uh, Chief of Staff, who was the S- Secret Service guy, mm-hmm. Tony Arnado, and the head of the Secret Service, James Murray, who Arnado recommended to Trump, because Trump right. originally offered right. the job to Arnado. Pence wouldn't get into the limo because yes. he didn't know where the hell he would end up. And yep. his, yep. his National Security Advisor, General Kellogg, in a warning to Anato, said, you know, you're going to spirit him off to Alaska. And that yeah. was apparently their plan. I mean, the idea that the president of the United States wanted to kidnap the vice president of the United States, who he already well, previously had threatened to have him lynched so that he could could stop the certification of Biden's victory. Well, and, uh, but not only that, Ian, there was, there was Senator Grassley saying that Grassley had said the night before that he expected he would be in charge of the counting of the votes. That they, they knew in advance that they were going to try to get Pence off the scene. And this is the Republican Party. This is, this is Charles Brad. He's been there forever. They're complicit in this. Some of them. Not all of them, but some of them. And, and so, that, I, 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 you know, I, I, I'm a historian. I'm not a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm not a soothsayer or anything. But I do think it requires investigation about how deep that went. Um, that, that, that it looked as if more people than just Donald Trump and the people, you know, close, very close to him had an inkling that Mike Pence might not be there for the counting of the votes, of the Electoral College votes, and somebody else would. And one only can, you know, it's not a stretch to think that the person who would be there in his place would be doing Trump's bidding. So, you know, there's a lot more to this story that I hope will come out with the January 6th commission. And that may come out, you know, with any investigation of Trump, you know, in, in, in Georgia and elsewhere, if this leads up to him. Right. Well, I, I sort of got sidetracked in my own long-winded question, Sean, <laughs> because I, no, I, I wanted, I wanted to, to make the suggestion that what happened on January the 6th was a kind of rehearsal, as serious as it was. It came very close to yeah. success. But since yeah. then, Trump and the Republicans have got their act together and they have targeted yeah. the election booth, both from yeah. the canvassing board, the local election boards, all the way up to the Secretary of State's offices. And now yeah. we've, since these primaries, and they're not all over yet, but most of them are in these key swing mm-hmm. states, there's at least mm-hmm. 10 secretaries of state that the, that the Republicans are running in, in the November elections that are election deniers mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. are believing in Trump's stop the steal mm-hmm. lies. So yeah. they are pl- planning, preparing for a one-party state where Correct. they will basically, Correct. just like Putin counts the vote in Russia, you know, and Stalin famously said it doesn't matter who votes but who counts yeah. the vote. That's right. where we're heading. We're into, heading into a kind of Russian-style 
pseudo-democracy. And the hero of the Republican Party today, and they had him at CPAC there in Dallas last week, is the autocrat in Hungary, Orban, yeah, uh, who's right, both Orban, right. not only an autocrat, but he's also a kleptocrat. So maybe that's why Trump yeah. likes him yeah. so much. Yeah, this right, is right, what's right. happening. Now, I'm not going to ask you whether you talked about this with President Biden, but surely it's there in the zeitgeist, isn't it? It certainly is. I mean, I wrote about this actually a year ago. I wrote a piece called The Tyranny of the Minority, and um, saying pretty much exactly what you said, Ian, that that's what the, that's what the Republicans are, are attempting to do, to install a permanent tyranny of the minority at the federal level in all three branches, and that they, they see it as being permanent. Not, not anything that can be undone through gerrymandering, through the suppression of the vote, through all of the things you know, that you mentioned in terms of changing around who counts the votes and so forth. Um, absolutely, that's what they plan. It's not, you know, the analogy, though, I think, is an American one. Again, I wouldn't reach to, to, to Putin to see it that way. I would see it. It's, it's the idea of the tyranny of the minority goes all the way back to John C. Calhoun when the slaveholders who were in the minority were trying to run the government. And they kind of effectively did for a while in the 1850s. They wanted to make that permanent. They failed. That's what the Civil War was about. Decades later, the segregationists were trying to do it, their own tyranny of the minority by holding up the Senate and the House. They kept anti-lynching bills off the table for a very long time. The minority was running things, right? Well, that got undone. Um, to the great credit of Jack Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson and the Democratic Party that changed and dared to, to change in the 1960s. This is a replay of all of that. This is a replay. This is the latest attempt to try to install a tyranny of the minority, except now they may be on the verge of doing so without having to have a civil war. By doing so legitimately, quote unquote, within the confines of the Constitution. And the Constitution, they found all the weak points within the system that they can actually undo the system with its own, you know, tools you know, in good Bolshevik fashion. Um, and, and that's that's really what we're facing. You're absolutely right. I mean, it, it is, you know, Putin-esque in a way. Um, but it also is, you know, it, it's, as if, it's as if John C. Calhoun is going to win the Civil War in the end. Right. That's what this is going to resemble. But it's not going to be anything that can be undone democratically. They are literally perverting American democracy. And that's when I say, when I say that they're trying to overthrow the country, overthrow the government, that's really what I mean. I don't mean that they're going to have a revolution, you know, it's not going to be the, you know, uh, Battleship Potemkin or all that, any of that stuff. It's not going to be the, the, the steps of the, the, the Winter Palace, no, nothing like that. Although I got to say that the Capitol looked a little bit like the Winter Palace on January 6th. That's not the way they're going to do it. They're going to do it this way. And, um, and, they're, and they're, they're coming perilously close to succeeding. Um, and until uh, and, and, and frankly, I think that a lot of the American people don't care. You know, a lot of the American people either don't get it or don't care. And I can understand that they have their own lives to live and so forth. And so that requires those of us who do care to actually start waking up and shouting about it. It's not good. Well, you mentioned earlier, Sean Lorenz, uh, what happened in Florida in 2000. With yeah. The, what was it? The Gucci uh, Rebellion or the? It was the, the the Brooks Brothers riot. Brooks Brothers. And I should add, <laughs> was the Brooks Brothers riot, you know, but combined with the Supreme Court. I sure. mean, they were well, the ones who who delivered the, the election to George W. Bush, and that's the same situation we have today. It's a combination of that kind of anti-democratic, um, you know, upsurge, including violence at the local level, but then the court ends up handing it over to the to, to, to them as they wanted to. Right, but but you mentioned that Roger Stone was involved uh, yes, and yes. others that are, that are coming up now in this current yes. coup attempt on January the 6th. 
Yes. Behind the scenes, of course, was John Roberts, who was also working on the Florida recount along yes. with uh, yes. Kavanaugh. Yeah, Both well, of Kavanaugh was... A, yeah, and Kavanaugh, on the, we're on the Supreme Court now. Kavanaugh had been involved in the, try to, to, the, the coup against Clinton. I mean, he was Ken Starr's you know, right-hand man. Um, you know, harassing uh, the members of the Vince Foster family and others. I mean, you know, it, 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 look, here's the point of that. that this, is, this is not begin with Trump. This really began, I mean, this is under the aegis of Jim Baker, the Florida recount, right? Mm-hmm. This is, you know, George H.W. Bush's man, you know, a, 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 a noble Republican, right? Putting into, you know, putting into office, among other people, Dick Cheney, whose daughter is now standing up for American democracy. But it started then. It was these people. Who started this? And Roger Stone is the one thing that connects the two, one, one of many who connect the two. But the fact is, this is nothing that's that's simply a product of Trumpism. This is where the Republican Party has been going for a very long time. And I'm saying this not as a partisan. I'm saying this as an historian. I mean, you just have to look and remember who was who and who was where. And, you, see, you know, it's not connecting the dots. The story is the history is there. Um, and, and future historians will be writing about it that way. Um, so, so that's really, I think, the, 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 uh, an important point to take away from all of this. Look, I'm all for, for, for Liz Cheney standing up, and it's great, and I admire her, and, and it's wonderful. But there also has to be an historical understanding of where this came from. Well, but we've talked about this coup underway against American democracy through yeah. the, the, both the, the legislative and executive branch with Trump threatening his comeback and the legislative branch, if the Republicans win at least the House in November, being completely subservient to Trump and and his right. lawlessness. But there's the right. other one-two punch, and that is the judicial branch, which is now controlled by an extremely reactionary Supreme Court. And their rulings could be even more damaging in a way. Uh, the last thing they did before they, after banning abortion and going after the EPA and in terms of being able to deal with global warming, which is a huge blow, Mm -hmm. they also announced that they're going to be looking into a really dangerous case where they can rewrite the rules of of how elections are done in this country, giving state legislatures total control. And these, we know how radical some of these Republican legislatures are, yeah, and absolutely. and removing any any ability on the part of the courts to intervene. So that's Correct. in the next docket. But if you look at what they're about, which is mm-hmm. what's called the non-delegation doctrine, yeah, which goes correct. back to FDR, what mm-hmm. the undoing of the EPA and the ability of OSHA to regulate mm-hmm. and the CDC to regulate, they've already gone after mm-hmm. them. That's mm-hmm. what uh, Stephen Bannon referred to when he said we're going to deconstruct the regulatory Correct. state. And Correct. that's what they're about. They're literally about destroying the ability of the government itself to function and to have any power over the plutocracy. So we have, <laughs> I don't mean to depress our audience, but we've, we've had a conversation about how dangerous things are at both the executive and legislative level, but we haven't talked about how dangerous they are at the judicial level. Oh yes, absolutely. They're terrible, but the only you know, but the only cure for that, because they are, after all, they have life terms. Um, just you know, I hate to say it, it sounds trite, but you got to vote. It's the only weapon we've got is to vote, and um, you know, um, we've shown that, that you know the Democrats have shown that they can they can um, uh, 
you know, as as in the Georgia elections, you know, just just after the, you know, um, um, in 2020, you know, in December, um, or I guess it was in the January. I can't remember, but nevertheless, you can win in places that you you're not supposed to win in. Um, it's not impossible, especially at the federal level. It's not impossible, um, um, but you have to do it. You have to get out there. You have to organize and be and be able to do it. I mean, that's the only way, and that that goes to the, to the judiciary as well. Um, I mean, it's not for nothing that Mitch McConnell kept Merrick Garland from being, um, you know, from being uh, made put up under the Supreme Court. That was their goal all along. Um, it's been that way since Ed Meese was was the Attorney General uh, under Reagan. I mean, just to, to completely strip the federal judiciary of anything that resembled um, New Deal liberalism um, or post New Deal liberalism, um, they were going to destroy it, and that's what they've done. They've done it not just at, at the Supreme Court level, but you know, in large parts of the of the court system. But how? But then again, you know, you do look at, at judges like you know, justices like Judge Ludig, and you think you know there are people actually even on that side who stand up for the Constitution. And um, so, but you have, but what it requires pressure from the citizens. That's the only thing we've got. Yeah. Well, I spoke recently with Gloria Steinem about the abortion decision, and she said, mm-hmm. "If you don't vote, you don't exist." Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think it's also going to be with the abortion decision. I think um, uh, abortion, the abortion decision may end up going the way of the, of the, uh, you know, the prohibition amendment. I think right. the pop, you know, in that sense, you know, I mean, people are just not going to obey it, and they're going to violate it, and there are going to be so many cases of, of outrageous um, prosecutions that it's just going to, you know, it, you know, it's going to, it's going to, that could turn things in a way that. Uh, would surprise the Republicans, right. um, and you know we'll see if they can do that. But but people just cannot, will not obey the law if the law is um, unobeyable. Well, we have to wrap it up here, and I'm really grateful you for your time. And I do find it a great irony that it, what Mitch McConnell did to Merrick Garland, as you just mentioned, now today Merrick Garland, of course, yes. is making it clear that Trump is in his sights, even though he's doing everything yes. by the book. And, of course, yes. guess who really hates Trump and wants him out of the way so that they can have somebody more effective to run like Ron DeSantis is none other than yes. Mitch McConnell. Yeah. Well, I think that's exactly right. I mean, and everyone I've spoken to were, you know, higher-ups higher, higher ups in the Republican Party have been intimating that as well. And, um, you know, I mean, frankly, between, you know, between you and me and the, and the large radio audience, uh, your radio audience, um, fine. I'll start with that. You know, Ron DeSantis presents his own difficulties, but Trump is a different kind of menace, and um, he, it has to be expunged. It has to be gotten rid of. Um, the menace, not the person, but the menace, just has to end um, because we're really at the, at, the, at the precipice. Well, Sean Wallens, I thank you very much for joining us here. Well, Sean Wallens, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Anytime, Ian, it's great to talk to you. Thank you again. And I've been speaking with Sean Wilentz, who is the George Henry Davis 1886 Professor of American History at Princeton University, where he's taught since 1979. His books include The Rise of American Democracy, Jefferson to Lincoln, The Age of Reagan, A History, 1974 to 2008, Bob Dylan in America, and Politicians and Egalitarians. And his latest book is No Property in Man, Slavery and Anti-Slavery at the Nation's Founding. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back and go to Miami, Florida for a local perspective on the recent execution of a search warrant at Mar-a-Lago. From whence shall we expect the approach of danger? Shall some transatlantic giant 
earth and crushes at a blow? Never. All the armies of Europe and Asia could not by force take a drink from the Ohio River or set a track on the Blue Ridge in the trial of a thousand years. If destruction be our lot, we ourselves must be its author and finisher. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Grant Stern, a Miami-based columnist and radio broadcaster who writes two national news columns, one for the Washington Press by Occupy Democrats and one focused on original investigative reporting at the Stern Facts. He's also a contributing investigative reporter for dcreports.org as well as the author of a book series, Meet the Candidates 2020, and hosts a weekly local radio broadcast on Jolt Radio called The Only in Miami Show, which airs every Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern. Welcome to Background Briefing, Grant Stern. Thank you for having me, Ian. So, Grant, given you're the infamous resident of Palm Beach, uh, Florida, near you, What's the local response? I mean, Trump is obviously trying to monetize outrage at, with his base to collect donations. But I'm not sure that there's any kind of great national movement. And, and at Mar-a-Lago itself, I saw news footage of a, like a handful, two or three people holding up Trump flags. So what's the local response down there? Is, are people rallying behind this martyred former leader? Uh, if there was a serious political crisis, people would be right out on the streets in Miami, and there's absolutely none of that. Um, there's some very prominent places they might go, like the actually the JFK Library in Hialeah or uh, Versailles, which is the the famous restaurant in Cayo Ocho. Um, that's where the Cuba Libre protests and the the you know the Viva Cuba protests, all the you know all the recent protests took place there, and they always have been there. Nothing is happening there, so. Um, I think that most of the outcry is is online right now. It's not really um, bubbling up in in the metropolitan area of Miami. And what are you hearing from local authorities or local sources? The local police apparently weren't particularly cooperative with the FBI, but they were held back. Well, I, I will tell you, based on my reportorial experience, that the local police agencies in Palm Beach are, are rife with error-prone deputies, and even, and this is kind of unusual but true, a deputy, a former uh, Palm Beach Sheriff's Office deputy who says that he sought asylum in Russia. He actually fled America to go to Russia, and he's there to this day. So I, I just don't think that any outside law enforcement agency would look at that sheriff's office and think, that they would be a credible partner to share the most sensitive law enforcement information in America. And the Palm Beach, uh, you know, police department is a very good department by reputation, but it's just, it's very small and they don't need to cooperate with these local uh, folks to really do anything. I mean, they have jurisdiction as federal agents and they exercised it. So any reporting that you either agree with or disagree with or can add to that uh, what's happening in the national press from a local perspective? Well, I, I would just say that there are a lot of people that are under various kinds of fraud investigation in South Florida. Um, you know, the court system here works generally just as well as it does anywhere else. I think that a great example of where it didn't work 
um, was chronicled on Netflix in uh, the Cocaine Cowboys Kings of Miami uh, miniseries, where there was like a, a prominent uh, cocaine traffickers trial that ended with jury tampering and then a trial on the jury tampering and a subsequent uh, conviction. So what's happening here, I would assume to be very normal, like the court system, the federal courts, there's no reputation for, uh, you know, bending one way or another, um, you know, judges that are like in the federal system, which is what we're dealing with. So I, I would just say that unless there is some miracle, this is going to be a legitimate investigation. These people would have probably quadruple checked every single thing, every single period on this application, knowing that from the experience of FBI investigators from five and six years ago, that every single thing they do, every email, every text, it's all going to be poured over one day. I mean, that day may not be uh, in the next Congress. It may be two or three Congresses from now or four, but someday there's going to be a tremendous amount of oversight on what we've seen this week. So, so and what, ever, what kind of reputation did Judge Reinhardt have? Well, he was appointed by Trump um, or appointed by a Trump appointee. And I mean, they don't just let anybody into the, the federal magistracy. I mean, it's a very, very powerful position. So what's the sense then of, I mean, what Trump is saying to his followers as he shakes them down for money is obviously outrageous. And he, he, he is a criminal. He's, a, he's feral. So he, he's saying now that the FBI planted evidence. And to my mind, that's a perfect example of the way he operates, which is to cover himself for the future re revelation of what's actually found there. And the more damaging and the, <laughs> the greater the smoking gun that finally emerges from what they took, Trump will be able to say, oh, that was planted by the FBI. Well, I think it says a lot about his culpability on the week that he pled the fifth 440 times in front of a civil deposition. I mean, think about this. That's so unusual. In a civil case, there's nothing technically criminal at stake. Um, you know, it says that they see the culpability level of the actions that have preceded this raid to be so high that they really need to start planting a rumor to try and infect the jury pool before the case even begins. And there's a story that came out in CNN that heightens the culpability level that I think that we are witnessing. Um, the story came out that in June, when investigators visited Mar-a-Lago, they actually visited pursuant to a criminal grand jury subpoena. So this isn't just a case where you have a judge sitting around overlooking this. You actually have a, a criminal grand jury investigation going on, presumably in Palm Beach County, Florida, um, on top of, you know, the raid and this other war. I mean, this was a very much a send a message kind of raid uh, or, or search or, you know, two dozen people search. But I mean, knowing that there's a grand jury investigation and then they still went and got this very secretive uh, raid, which they thought, honestly, they I've been reading about it, uh, that they thought that this would de-escalate. They wanted to keep it a little bit more quiet. But uh, it, nothing that happens in Mar-a-Lago stays in Mar-a-Lago. I think we all know that by now. Well, I spoke the other day with Peter Strzok, who was deputy head of uh, counterintelligence of the FBI, and we talked about 
what's loosely called chain of custody. In other words, these documents were taken from the White House illegally, and there's no way to know under what conditions they were stored. Apparently, they were in a storeroom in Trump's office and in Trump's bedroom. And he made the point that, for example, you know, the FBI certainly searches people for, for guns and knives, but if a you know, a telephone repairman comes, there's no way in the world that they would know that he could be a Cuban illegal working for the FSB. So is that, is there any uh, sense of that possibility? I mean, <laughs> I've... I think that's a very plausible uh, scenario that you've put forward. I mean, you know, Miami is not rife with spies, but just for example, the longtime uh, and very celebrated for good reason uh, president of Florida International University, Modesto Modique, had two Cuban spies that were working for him as his top lieutenants. Um, so this is not as far-fetched as it sounds that they could slip in a maid or a janitor, uh, someone work maybe illegally, because honestly, we know that uh, the Trump organization has a history of employing people uh, without documentation. So, uh, you know, this is a very plausible theory. This is not an organization known for its meticulousness, but rather uh, its, you know, commitment to capitalism, making as much money as quickly as possible, regardless of whatever consequences may happen. Um, We've seen that with all the dealings with the Russians, uh, selling a, you know, flipping a a $50 million uh, house to a a Russian for $100 million, and then the Russian knocks the house down. I mean, this is the kind of business dealings that we've seen with Donald Trump in Palm Beach County. So I, I would say that your your scenario is very much on the ball. I mean, we've seen that there are uh, Chinese nationals who are in Mar-a-Lago. Uh, they were fundraising using Donald Trump, multiple groups of them that have been indicted for different scams. Um, you know, Mar-a-Lago is, is really just... You know, it's funny because the the name Mar-a-Lago actually is, uh, it's you know, it's because it's between the the lake and the the sea. The you know Mar-a-Lago, it's like in between, right? And it's just like this open port <laughs> from all sides. Uh, you know, anybody who really puts up the money to be there can go there, and that's kind of, it's it's a reflection of Donald Trump's ethos as someone who is not an insider in New York, came from new money, as New Yorkers might call it. And and so he was like, well, I'm going to build my own club and anybody can get in here. And that's kind of part of his political appeal as well. But that's how Mar-a-Lago is. It's like people pay that those dues and, and they can walk in the door. So storing them there, I mean, I would put no faith in that. It is not a secure location unless you had, say, uh, Secret Service agents like protecting those documents. And if you want to recall an incident from early in the Trump presidency, uh, he was at Mar-a-Lago dining with the now recently departed uh, former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, and they were dining at Mar-a-Lago together, and then North Korea, uh, you know, did another a test fire of a nuclear missile. Now the timing of that could not have been so accidental. I mean, he was very easy to track when he was at Mar-a-Lago, and all of a sudden, all of this national security activity happened right in plain sight, in front of everybody there. So, I mean, national security uh, has always been compromised by what happens at Mar-a-Lago since Donald Trump gained the presidency from early on. And to say that any document would be safe there would be foolhardy, um, even for just someone working in a typical business where you just want to maintain a a modest level of confidentiality for top secret uh, material for the government. um, This has to just be a total disaster. Like there's who knows the kind of things 
that have slipped to to adversary nations because of what Donald Trump took, which is 27 boxes of classified information. 27, I heard it was 15. Well, if you read the Washington Post story, there were 15 that were retrieved in January. Then the raid retrieved another 12. I see. That's right. It's it, 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 it's not it's not really putting out been put out there quite in the set, that manner, but. If you read the post story, it says that they retrieved 15 in January, but they had to do this other raid because there was more. Well, apparently, according to a number of fresh reports, there was an insider at Mar-a-Lago who tipped off the FBI where to find this material, these documents. And according to Michael Cohen, Trump's former fixer and lawyer, he said that's the thing that would, would really rattle Trump more than anything, the idea that there's a spy in his midst. So <laughs> apparently things are, are pretty testy and tense down in uh, Mar-a-Lago. Well, uh, Donald Trump would know a lot about the FBI and confidential informing because he was longtime business partners with Felix Sater, the former Russian mafia associate who then became an FBI informant for a decade. I mean, and we're not talking about like little partners, like, well, you know, they had a gas station together. Um, the, the Bayrock company was buying very large properties all over the country. Uh, they were, they literally said, you can come to us to buy a Trump brand hotel or property. Um, they were involved in developing a Trump property in Fort Lauderdale. There's one in Tampa, one in Phoenix. I think there was one in Denver, but the one in, in Fort Lauderdale, Florida in particular, is what led to the revelation of Felix Sater's career as an FBI informant because there was massive, massive fraud uh, litigation, civil litigation over that project and many other doings of Felix Sater and the Bayrock companies who were Donald Trump's partners. I mean, he had a Trump business card, uh, this man Sater. And, um, you know, he knows the kind of damage. Uh, Donald Trump would know the kind of damage that an FBI informant can do to an organization, having worked with one for so, so, so many years. I mean, you know, they asked him in an interview that I uncovered uh, in a Russian publication if Donald Trump knew. Uh, and he kind of said, well, he had to know. Like Sater said, he kind of had to know that what I was up to. Well, Sater, of course, along with Michael Cohen in 2016 and 2017, even after Trump had been elected, he was negotiating with the Russians on Trump's behalf to build a Trump Tower in Moscow. And that was a long-standing lure that both the KGB and then later the successor organization, the FSB, were using to lure Trump with the building of a Trump Tower. On his first trip to Moscow on July the 4th of 1987, the KGB used exactly the same lure. You know, the purpose yes. of his trip was to build a Trump Tower, which of course was a fantasy. But the idea that it's lasted from 1987 till 2017 indicates that they had a long relationship, uh, the Russian intelligence services and Donald Trump. Well, I would say that um, what happened in 2013 and 14 is actually the most important of all that whole time span because it's less reported, but absolutely a fact and reported widely and in the Russian paper that Donald Trump actually did agree to create a Trump Tower along with the oligarch Aras Agalarov, 
whose son Emin Agalarov is a musical performer. And the two of them brought the Miss Universe pageant over to Moscow with Donald Trump. Um, I actually uncovered a story back in 2017. And the, the title of it was that Michael Cohen lied. He had Russian oligarch uh, contacts because he had denied that earlier that year. And amazingly, he had blocked. He, he saw the story and blocked me on Twitter for writing this one because I had pictures of all them all signing some paperwork in Las Vegas together. Well, this Trump Tower preceded the bigger, fancier, you know, mega tower that they were offering in the financial district. So, uh, you know, this is not something that happened overnight. Like, actually, like the tower deal you mentioned was the second tower deal in less than four years. And it came after the invasion of Ukraine, which slapped a lot of different sanctions on doing business with and inside of Moscow on American citizens. So, um, yeah, I think you're dead on in, in assessing that the, that Donald Trump had a lot of contact with people who would probably be part of the Russian intelligence services and was offered something of immense value that drew him into that relationship. But to take it one step further, Sater and Cohen were involved in another incident. And I should mention um, that on my, uh, the podcast I produced, the Dworkin Report, we interviewed Michael Cohen recently. He unblocked me on Twitter. Um, I feel like this is progress in the world. Um, but something else that happened is that Sater was approached by a Ukrainian lawmaker named Andre Artemenko and given a plan that was said it was approved by Putin to uh, basically settle the Ukraine-Russia invasion 1.0. Um, and this was a plan that was ultimately created by a former Republican congressman named Kurt Weldon from Pennsylvania, um, along with a Ukrainian oligarch named Alexander Roft, who's connected with Paul Manafort. Um, this was called the back channel Ukraine peace deal, right? That's what it was known as. And the New York Times reported that this document had been delivered to Sater, then from Sater to Cohen, and then Cohen delivered it to General Michael Flynn during that tiny window in time where Flynn was the national security advisor. And I mean, I have to tell you, this is really serious stuff. Artemenko was stripped of both his, his legislative role and his citizenship by Ukraine because of what he did. And Cohen last year posted a copy of the back channel peace deal. Mm -hmm. He posted it show uh, proving that this was like, it literally said on it that it was approved by Putin. So, so well, I, I mean, I, we've see, run out of time. I'm afraid uh, to diplomatic ties. That's yeah. it. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, I I'm just in closing. I, I'm quite sure that, Putin has a Gulfstream jet standing by in Florida to take Trump to Cuba, but that's just <laughs> a parting thought. <laughs> I predicted that in 2016. You did? When I started learning about, oh, yeah. When I started learning about all this, how much he loved Putin, I thought he was going to seek asylum in Russia. Well, <laughs> the way to, get, way to get out of town would be via Cuba. Sure, why not? Right, okay. I thank you for joining us, sir. Grant Stern. Thank you for having me in. And again, I've been speaking with Grant Stern, who's a Miami-based columnist and radio broadcaster who writes two national news columns, one at the Washington Press by Occupy Democrats and one focused on original investigative reporting at the Stern Facts. He's also a contributing investigative reporter for dcreport.org 
as well as the author of the book series Meet the Candidates 2020 and hosts a weekly local radio broadcast on Jolt Radio called The Only in Miami Show, which airs every Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America My quiet voice Saying it's something to me An angel song about the home of the brave In this land here of the free One time, one night One more light goes out